Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. I'm Marissa Rothkoff, the host of The Secret Life of Cookies. Welcome to our second episode. A recap for those who don't know me. I'm a professional food writer who has done everything from restaurant reviews for the New York Times to writing a column on kitchen gadgets for Newsweek. And I also teach journalism at Montclair State University right here in beautiful New Jersey. I'm researching a book on the history of the American kitchen because I think there's no better place to tell the story of a country than in the place where, let's face it, everything has happened. You know, remember in the olden days when you had parties in your house? Do you remember where all your guests ended up? Yep, the kitchen. So at The Secret Life of Cookies, we want to bring you into the kitchen for conversation and, of course, baked goods. This week, I had the true pleasure of speaking with therapist and author Dr. Mary Trump. We agreed that warm brownies were a good way to self-soothe after the week we had. Mary's brownies are from a box. Mine are from scratch. But we also agreed it's not important how you make the brownies as long as you get brownies. So thank you for joining us in the kitchen. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll be back at the end of the episode to let you know more about the recipe. Anyway, I want to thank you very much for being here, for coming on to this sort of wacky concoction of a podcast to um, make and bake and talk. And I really wish you could be in my kitchen. That would be the ideal setup. But here we are across the miles. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Someday. Someday, someday in this kitchen. Um, so you are Dr. Mary L. Trump with a PhD, which is really nice. And we like to bring attention to that these days when people start trying to denigrate the fact that women have PhDs and aren't, you know, are called doctor, but may not be an actual physician. Uh, how dare they? I mean, I totally forgot what PhD stood for, but um, I think it has something to do with what it stands for, but I could be wrong. <laughs> Before warn that way, I do not have a PhD in baking. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I have. I I brought you here today because I like baking, and I think everybody likes brownies. And I think we're at a point not, not to be too flip about it, but in the whole situation where brownies are needed <laughs> on a daily basis. Yes. <laughs> um, and you said that you're not much of a baker, so I'm going to be making brownies from scratch today, which is quite simple. And are you? Well, honestly, it's it's not that I'm I'm not much of a baker. I didn't want to intimidate anybody with my baking skills. Fair enough. So fair enough. I decided to go old school. And, and a Betty uh, Crocker fudge brownie mix. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And honestly, um, no, the real reason is, of course, because if you wanted me to carry on a conversation while baking, <laughs> it had to be as simple as humanly possible, because that's not the kind of multitasking I could do. <laughs> me in the kitchen is is not uh, me with ton, tons of confidence. So I appreciate you're letting me, you know, I, I, think, I think the conclusion I came to is that it's more important to have the brownies, not how you get there, right? I, it, that's like, it's like Donald's attitude towards winning. <laughs> <laughs> it's not how you get there. Yeah, just that you, and, that you get and, there. And just to be clear, I don't think um, it's not a perfect parallel between how Donald got there and how you will get to your brownie end, because I don't think a box mix is cheating. Right. Um, just to be clear. It's like taking uh, a shortcut. You're right. It's not because you still get right. Exactly. It, you have to do stuff. You are there's earning. There's a process and you're earning these brownies. A lot went into it. Um, I also um, will admit only to you and nobody else except the people who maybe are listening that um, I have a secret place in my heart for a box brownie mix, like the flavor. Like if I go to someone's like fancy buffet, I may bring my own fancy brownies with beautiful, expensive ingredients. But if I know that there's like a platter with Duncan Hines brownies on it, there's just something about them. 
Um, yeah, it's up there with Kraft macaroni and cheese with the powder. Right. For me, it's Velveeta. We were a Velveeta family. Ooh, all right. I, I'm, I'm not going to judge. Thank you. Thank you. Because, you know, Velveeta has so many different um, possibilities. My family, it was big in hamburger casserole. My mother would make a cheeseburger casserole and would put a layer of Velveeta throughout it. I mean, it was like striations of Velveeta, which is great for like a molten orange lava look. <laughs> yeah. Then on top, she would put the squares of it and let it bake and bake and bake until it turned black and puffed. And that's how we knew, <laughs> literally black. Wow. Yeah. On it purpose. Was, it was on purpose. Like it grilled was, Velveeta. I've, that's fascinating. It sounds like you and I, <laughs> Difference in Velveeta powder aside that, that we ate uh, just as healthfully <laughs> when we were kids. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pop-Tarts, pop did you have a flavor? Oh my God. Uh, brown, 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 brown sugar? sugar? Yeah, brown sugar. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my favorite. Um, although I would eat pretty much any kind of Pop-Tart. Uh, one of my favorite breakfasts was uh, milk duds and um, orange soda. Milk does an orange soda, so that like it's like orange juice, except really with fizz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the color that matters, not, <laughs> not the contents. Yeah, uh, not not, not a healthy. No, we had every kind of sugar sugar cereal uh, known at yeah. the time. Uh, quick strawberry and chocolate. Really, and Entenmann's. Entenmann's everything. Entenmann's everything. Yeah. It was. Um, I also have a place in my heart, probably actually made out of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I too grew up that way. And I, I, I have complete respect for them. Like as much as I would like to create a chewy Entenmann style chocolate chip cookie, know artificial flavors have a special place i was gonna say like where are you gonna find all those preservatives <laughs> i did really poorly in chemistry so i uh, in high school so i have to just do this all myself um i'm gonna actually start cooking while right. we're talking um but uh, you know it's been this is usually for me i am making a gluten-free brownie Ooh. so it's and the truth is once you've laid out all your ingredients you can make these brownies in no time so it's almost like as easy as a box mix. Like, what do you have to do with your box mix? What do you have to add? You have to take it out of the box. I, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> all right. Opening that plastic part is probably the hardest part. Yeah, you need scissors. I've, I've learned, I've learned. Um, I need to, uh, let's see, I need water, vegetable oil, and um, dos huevos, apparently. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah, yeah. And I need to preheat the oven, but that would require my knowing how big the pan is. So you, um, this week, um, I think um, it was a slow news week. Um, did anything catch your eye on the news this week? No, actually, I've been, I've been um, scouring uh, like foreign news sites because um, I was afraid we would be at a loss for conversation. So, <laughs> okay. so if you want to know what's going on down in uh, Brisbane. I do. And, and the turmeric harvest in India. I'd like to know about that, too. Yeah. Uh, let's see what what is going on. Um, I don't know. I the thing that's on my mind at the moment, besides the obvious, what the hell else horrors are going to be unleashed upon us by Donald, um, is why are they not holding the inauguration virtually? It's making me crazy. You're making me crazy too. I don't need more things to worry about, and I'm worrying about that. Right. And somebody, I think it might have been James Comey, which immediately suggest that it's a terrible idea, <laughs> said that it's because, you know, we're not going to let them destroy our traditions. Fuck our traditions right now. First of all. Right. <laughs> Secondly, because you know what? They got a win the other day. Why right. give them an opportunity to have another win? They're shutting down the mall. Uh, they can't hold their rehearsal <laughs> because of security concerns and Biden can't take the train. All of that aside, all COVID's enough of a reason. COVID is enough of a reason. We are all very much used to having virtual everything. We've all had virtual birthday parties, virtual yep. Christmases. Yep. I think it's actually a fine example. I agree. 
for us to not hold the inauguration. I totally other than virtual. Um, so we have um, a country that's, um, the problems it seems to me that are going on right now are a little bit bigger than what brownies can do. Brownies are sort of a small scale, yeah. quick fix, soothing, warm. And typically I will say that I line a brownie pan with a aluminum foil sling so I can lift them out and cut them beautifully so they present nicely. These aren't brownies I'm gonna do that with. There's a time and a place for everything. And this is the time and the place to be eating brownies out of the pan with a spoon. Um, and even though brownies do get better with age, as they age, the chocolate flavor becomes more intense. I think- um, That's probably not true of box brownies, but <laughs> anyway. By the way, I just want to take a moment to uh, let everybody know that I successfully cracked the eggs without getting any shell. It's because usually when you eat my brownies, you get a little extra <laughs> calcium. <laughs> That's it. We don't, right. crunchy yeah. brownies. In the Trump thing. house, we don't spend extra money on expensive calcium tablets. <laughs> no. We no. just crush up eggshells. <laughs> so you, you're in the midst of writing a book about, say, trauma? I know it's a stretch, but um, I am in the process of digging for material. It's hard to come by. But yes, um, strangely, I thought it was timely, a timely topic. Um, you know, honestly, it always has been. The premise is essentially this country was born in trauma. And uh, because we have never, those of us in the majority, I should say, yeah. um, not only haven't we atoned for the trauma we've inflicted upon uh, two entire races of people, and you know, not that this is necessarily the point, but on ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, because that does matter, right? In ways, hopefully, I'll be able to explain. Uh, we've we've never we've barely acknowledged it, right? So it's only gotten worse, and. Um, you know, white people who think, oh, you know, it was 400 years ago. No, it wasn't. It was like 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And it's now. Um, right. It's not like it ever stopped. Let's get back to trauma in a second. I just, I just, um, was your grandmother any sort of a cook? <laughs> yes, she was. Actually, speaking of trauma, what kind of cook was your grandmother? Exactly. I mean, it's amaz amazing that anybody survived. Oh, wait, practically nobody did. Um, so or I should say intact. Oh, she was all right. I don't want to stereotype, but the first thing I'll say about her is from she was from Scotland. And it's not just that she was from Scotland, she was from an island in the outer Hebrides, 40 oh. miles off the northwest coast of Scotland. Literally in the middle of nowhere. There are more sheep than people. Um, she was the youngest of 10. And um, that's remarkable. Yeah, it actually kind of is. Uh, you know, maybe that explains something about her. Who knows? Um, so, so you ate a lot of mutton and oats. I mean, what is that? How did that translate no. into Queens? She actually made the same things. Um, she made uh, what was the kind of rice that came in the red box? Rice aroni. Oh no, I'm sorry. The uh, minute rice. Maybe. I don't yeah. remember. Maybe. It was terrible. Um, she made her specialty, and I'm not kidding, was Russian dressing, which of course is fitting. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that aside, it was literally mayonnaise, ketchup, and relish, which is to this day why I hate condiments. And salad was iceberg lettuce with Russian dressing. So... That's lovely. It's like bringing the two cultures together on a plate, which obviously had a real impact on Donald. Yes. Yes, it really brought into his horizons. <laughs> and uh, who knows? Predisposed him. Yeah. Maybe oh. that's what they were talking about in Helsinki. <laughs> yes, I know so much about your culture because I grew up <laughs> eating Russian dressing. That's probably what happened. We don't need that transcript. Um, <laughs> No, we don't. So did she, was she the, the sole cook when it came to like Thanksgiving? There was oh no- Oh my God. There was no help? Uh, Marie, 
uh, kind of like did the dishes and helped bring stuff out. Marie, the long suffering live in housekeeper who lived in a room in the attic that was like the size of a friggin' closet. The only room in the house that was worse than Marie's room was my dad's. But anyway, no, my it was the same thing Thanksgiving, Christmas, identical menus, turkey, obviously, stuffing, obviously. Um, yeah. What? Yeah, uh, like uh, green beans, but boiled. Mm. Scotland, um, and and she did that thing. Was it like sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top, which I never ate. Mashed potatoes gravy. So um, the only thing I ever ate as a kid was the turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, and gravy. And then I became a vegetarian. So literally, Thanksgiving for me was mashed potatoes. And, oh gosh. Okay. You know, uh, yeah. Because there was no accommodating the weirdo vegetarian. And everybody, and that, so that was both Christmas and Thanksgiving. And at holidays, would she like, would you bake cakes? Would you buy cakes? I mean. Ice cream cake. Ice cream cake, fair enough. Yeah, which she made. She, she made. Claim. I don't know, how hard is it? You melt ice cream, you pour it into some No, cake. no, it's, I just think that's, I mean, in the world of where Fudgy the Whale lives, I guess that's good. I mean, yeah, you know, that is an interesting, although we did also have Fudgy the Whale uh, on occasion. But one year, um, and we were a family of carnivals. Uh, when we went to Peter Luger, yeah, the table we left behind was the stuff of nightmares. Seriously. Really? So, so, was, so Peter Luger, the great steakhouse. Well, once great the steakhouse. steakhouse. <laughs> Um, yeah, so being a vegetarian there was also really fun. Um, but anyway, my grandmother one Christmas decided, how dare she, to make filet mignon instead of turkey. Mm. Again, carnivores. Love, love, love steak. Throw the time. meat onto the table, yeah. And um, they were so mean to her about it. Like, oh, mom, can't believe, where's the, where's the turkey? Where's the stuffing? We look forward to this all year. Like you just had it like three weeks ago. What are you talking about? It was uh, quite something. But you know, every year, oh, mom, it was the best. It was the greatest. It sound familiar? Um, and it was always quite terrible. <laughs> but you know, well, at least they were supportive in that. Yes, that's true. Well, there, you know, she was uh, fulfilling her purpose, sadly. And uh, that may explain the vanilla. And yeah. <laughs> it was all, yeah, that, or the cooking sherry. Yeah, she, uh, she definitely had issues. I mean, it ran in the family, runs probably. Right. Um, so, uh, and obviously she was never gonna get help. No, help is not something that seems, um, that was uh, encouraged in your house, it seems to me. Uh, first of all, I, I mean, just from, you know, I have read your book and sort of what I can kind of glean from, I don't know, notable members of your family that help is not something that you ask for. Um, or acknowledge or, needing. Or acknowledge needing. I think it's more, you may get, you may ask for it, but it's quietly and you don't acknowledge needing it. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, which. Is that healthy? Clearly um, creates superior beings. You know, those of us who don't acknowledge having any problems are much better off than people who acknowledge their problems and get help. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right there. That's a really good point. It's a great takeaway for all of our audience, I think. Yes, and look, this is coming from a PhD in, in a box brownies. Because <laughs> yeah, so. look, I want to show you, like, look, look how it's beautiful. Right? Shiny. It has a great. It has great shine to it. It's going to create a nice crust. It looks like uh, plastic, actually. <laughs> um, uh, mine has a grainy texture because of the flour, and I'm now going to add a lot of chocolate chips to it. Ooh. Oh wow. Shit. Shoot. I should have Sorry. thought of that. All right. Just outclassing me at every turn. You know, it's um, it's all I got, baby. Do you, was it not fun writing? What what was your mood throughout the writing of um, Too Much and Never Enough? Quiet desperation, perhaps. Quiet desperation. <laughs> it was terrible. Why? It was really hard. Well, you know, first of all, 
oh wait, I'm just remembering I should not put all of the mix into the pan because then I don't have any. <laughs> yeah, that's an important detail. When making a box mix, remember you need some for after. Yeah, who cares about salmonella? <laughs> Those eggs are probably pretty fresh. Yeah. FDA is looking out for you. <laughs> you just convinced me not to try any robot. <laughs> not this FDA. Um, Soon. I have, see that you have taught classes in trauma and um, psychopathology. What made you think of doing classes in psychopathology? Um, you know, because I, I never experienced any of that stuff before. And um, I thought I should broaden my horizons. That's good. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, did you have a sense of the kind of lack of normalcy going on? I mean, I, you know, I'm judging you by the book that I read, but what was your sense of what was going on as a kid? Um, oh, you know, it was normal. Like everybody's family is normal. The horrors are normal. The uh, weirdnesses are normal. The idiosyncrasies are normal. The um, boring conversations are normal. You know, the fact that nobody had ever had anything to talk about, the total lack of interest in my life was all normal, right? So, um, you know, like contempt for my father was normal. Uh, the idea that Donald was this extraordinary, not just successful self-made person, but was extravagantly wealthy, like more wealthy than my grandfather, which is insane because every Don Donald had came from my grandfather, you know? Right. So, but you know, it's like we were the test ground for the the myths that my, my grandfather perpetuated. Um, so, I honestly don't know when I started realizing. Yeah, that's a good question. I know when I started realizing that that the stuff about Donald was probably exaggerated, if not outright false. And that's when uh, I started writing the second book and I, I saw him every day. Right. And I swear to you, I he didn't do anything. Like that wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating for effect. I never saw the guy work. Um, you know, and I heard stories about what a hardworking and he's always in the office and yeah, but he's in the office reading articles about himself, gossiping on the phone and writing what he thought were witty uh, rejoinders on the articles that he'd cut out and sending them back to, <laughs> it's just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, I guess I was in my early twenties when, when that started to crumble and you know, it took much longer for the rest of the stuff because, uh, you know, I was really close with my grandmother, mm -hmm. unbelievably enough, in retrospect. And um, why is it unbelievable in retrospect? Well, because she turned out to be just a horrible, horrible human being. And, um, you know, when I didn't realize that, like, how could the stuff about my dad not be true? If, you know, my grandmother, whom I loved, and with whom I was quite close, you know, never countered those ideas we had about my dad. And what were the ideas that were promulgated about your father? That he was a totally unaccomplished alcoholic loser. Right. And he'd been like one of the first pilots for TWA and... At 25. At 25. Or 26. He was flying 707s across the country. Um, you know, uh... And I didn't even know that. I mean, I knew he'd flown, but didn't know it was a big deal. You know, didn't think anything he'd done was a big deal. Um, didn't think anything that he was good at made mattered, you know, like boating and stuff, fishing. Mm. Uh, he was a really skilled person. And um, it wasn't just, you know, one person telling those stories. It was every, I mean, not that people needed to say much, you know, it's like, he just didn't matter. Uh, so, you know, nobody was gonna set the record straight, that's for sure. And so that's the sort of, so eventually you figured out that your father was actually a quite accomplished human being. And 
did you, your mood towards your family begin to shift a little bit? Well, it didn't happen until after I'd been disinherited. <laughs> so uh, the mood had shifted. <laughs> I, I hear that does it to you, just being disinherited. I can do it to you. Well, that and what, you know, uh, uh, stripping us of our health insurance, which was um, helping my then infant nephew stay in the neonatal intensive care unit while he was having seizures, you know. <laughs> it just changes your opinion about a person. Why, why do people act this way? Why do people, um, I mean, lots of people have some pretty kooky families. Yours is on the kind of uh, the, the steroided, you know, the scale with steroids, right? Um, but how do people, how, how does this happen? Well, I, honestly, I don't, I don't think my family is much different from other families like that. It's not, you know, um, all the money made them worse, sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, history is replete with horrible rich family stories. Um, and if it weren't for the last, well, I mean, I guess the TV stuff, the, I blame the media a lot for going back to the late 70s honestly mm -hmm. but um you know uh it's not it's not common of course that a family has a sociopath for father mm -hmm. um and a personality disordered mother but you know we got lucky america is full of opportunity um yeah you you say you blame the media uh, Donald blames the media a lot too, but in a very different way. Yes, he does. In fact, I'm not out to get uh, members of the media killed because I think that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm talking about like the tabloids and uh, in the 70s and 80s and, um, you know, it's a totally different conversation about the media over the last five years. Well, last couple of decades, just in general. You know, with both the both siderism and the whataboutism that's plagued us, but it's just extraordinary how, in that very in uh, enclosed environment that was New York City in the eighties, um, his story was swallowed hook, line, and sinker, uh, and there was absolutely no, um, with the exception of people like Wayne Barrett. There was no pushback. There was no investigation, nothing. Well, um, I, there was one notable exception, which was Spy Magazine, where I worked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, did you? Seriously? I mean, I, I was in it, if Kurt is listening or Graydon or anybody, I, I know I was just an intern. And then I, you know, but I worked there for a while. Um, and yeah, but one fingered Bulgarian remains one of my favorite characterizations of him. It should be on his tombstone mm. if he were allowed to have one, which he shouldn't be. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's um, <a> <laughs> um, yeah, but the media sort of helped him build his brand. And he had that great, was it, was it John Barron, his um, PR guy? Uh, I actually tried to hire John Barron to be my publicist. Really? Yeah, but well, I um, think I think he might be out of a job. Like he might be needing new work soon. So you might want to reach out to him maybe after the twentieth. Yeah, uh, I mean, if he yes, <laughs> I could get his contact information. Uh, unfortunately, I think the only person I could get it from is Donald, and I don't think he's taking my calls. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, but John Barron might. You never know. So you have to sit down. You've been sitting down now for how long? When is when can we expect? The book on trauma to come out this is actually your editor called me and he wanted to know i, I mean i i feel like i i've been set up <laughs> um well we can expect it to come out when they said it was going to um right. on i think it's july 20th <laughs> so no but pressure the, the but the book is about trauma and does it will it address like we have a big problem in this country right now which is we're sort of broken sort of really? oh yeah okay. yeah and so, um i need to add a chapter <laughs> broken that's the introduction broken and yeah. would you say that 
we as a people have experienced. Like I feel like I'm sort of traumatized by what's gone on. And I don't just mean like the experience of having a president who gaslights us daily, hourly, by the minute, but also coronavirus is going on. And we're, you know, our whole lives have changed in so many ways. Well, um, no, well, I mean, that's sort of, that's honestly what the book is addressing most points. The other stuff is is sort of uh, the preface. Um, you know, our, our, the fact that, we're, that we were born in trauma, we've never addressed that properly. Um, all the same, like it is not, it is not wrong to say that, you know, this is hope, well, hopefully it's the last, but it's a chapter in the Civil War that never ended. I mean, if the Civil War had ended, Robert E. Lee wouldn't have had universities named after him and people wouldn't be flying that disgusting flood. So between that and the failures of accountability, again, Robert E. Lee, who not just, uh, you know, betrayed his country, he fought a war in which 650,000 Americans died uh, all so that he and other rich white men could retain the right to enslave and torture and murder with impunity black people. Mm-hmm. Um, he became a, the president of a university after the Civil War ended, mm-hmm. and after he allegedly lost it. Uh, that university was then named after him, Washington Lee and Lee University. I think it still exists. So, you know, we go from there to Andrew Johnson, Andrew Jackson, uh, to or the other way around. Um, Woodrow Wilson, uh, also a despicable racist who mishandled badly the 1918 pandemic. Um, and, you know, even our so-called good presidents, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, um, put Japanese Americans in internment camps. So, um, Nixon resigned, was pardoned, and then went on to have a career as a diplomat, sort of. And uh, George W. Bush and all of them should have been sent to the, the Hague for committing <laughs> crimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's never accountability. Is it any surprise that somebody like Donald would get as far as he's gotten? Because he is also somebody who's absolutely never been held accountable. So those two things together have, have um, you know, which again is sort of the preface to the whole book, have put us in this incredibly vulnerable situation in which we're susceptible uh, to people like him. We're susceptible, uh, you know, to um, voting against our own self-interests. Mm-hmm. And... We also, uh, I mean, this isn't unique to America, but you know, in the West, we have this really bizarre way of fabricating mental and physical health. So um, mental illness is still viewed um, as a moral failing in some ways, right. and mental health is treated as a luxury. So um, we are, Basically, uh, I think once, once, hopefully, we contain COVID and people are vaccinated and we start emerging, we're going to find out just how severe the mental health crisis is that's facing us. Um, and at the best of times, we're not prepared to deal with it. So, and these are, as you say, not the best of times. The, the, uh, I think there are three intersecting crises um, Two of them are directly related. Uh, COVID, the mis- sorry, the willful, malicious mishandling of COVID Thank you. created the economic crisis. Mm-hmm. And the third crisis is a, essentially a crisis of conscience and um, the close call, uh, you know, which was partially the result of um, the trauma and the long-standing trauma and failures of accountability, but also um, the fact that so many of us in the majority have taken democracy for granted. Um, well, where other people clearly can't. 
so we have our work cut out for us and um it's a really complicated issue obviously so i can't pretend to know what to do precisely um but you know it, this book is is besides just helping people kind of understand how we got here uh it's 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 sort of a similar um reason or motivation for the last one i just wanted to start the conversation i wanted to start the conversation about donald's severe psychopathologies because mm -hmm. that was a conversation that wasn't being had uh you know um i want to help start the conversation as i'm sure other people will be doing it too about the crisis we're facing and what we need to do not just to address it in the short term but to come up with long-term solutions um at the community to family level community level etc mm -hmm. one of the things that um i was talking to a therapist earlier earlier today not not mine um and we were talking about um uh, it was mine um <laughs> Rolling, in case anybody didn't get that, um, that the kind of um, experience this country is going through right now isn't just like, isn't, is not equivalent to 9-11. 9-11 happened to us. It was horrendous. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it put us all on edge. But we've had she put it really well, sort of rolling trauma. And in, I think it's, it's a far more undoing to our psyche and to our physical well-being than we might even admit to. And this is from a position of privilege, right? I have it all going for me. I am a lucky, lucky person of privilege. Well, I, I hope this can, I don't know, the world has, our country has, there are plenty of people who are living with rolling trauma all the time. Now there's this extra layer on top of it. I mean, first of all, I, I, look, I do this too. It's like, oh, you know, I'm so lucky. No, we're not lucky. It's fucking horrible. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's worse for other people, for sure. But it's still horrible. And, you know, to pretend otherwise is to do us ourselves a disservice. Um, I think, you know, if we look at the country as a person, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's ongoing trauma that's being inflicted by an authority figure we're supposed to be able to count on. And it's going to result in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very difficult to treat and not um curable. Um, and I'm I'm saying this as somebody who actually has complex complex ptsd so um which i think is actually useful and i want to thank the people responsible for giving it to me um no because i think it's 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 really going to be a useful lens through which to see what's going on you mm -hmm. know and since i have it anyway i might as well make some good use of it <laughs> So we have this issue in the country where we all have to heal from something. For some of us, you know, the reaction people have had to just seeing like Joe Biden, for like Joe Biden's supporters, just seeing him interact with like his dogs has yeah. been a bomb. You know, we are really, we're really uh, uh, starved for seeing that kind of interaction, human, canine, but just warmth exuded. <laughs> Um, authentic. Authentic. Um, there's a whole group of people out there who are, I, I think the word is rabid, speaking of dogs, but not fair to dogs, <laughs> rabid supporters of um, Donald Trump's and also, you know, are set on changing the course of the country, right? They um, tried to overthrow the Capitol. They, um, they tried to assassinate people. You know, that was their intention was to assassinate mm -hmm. people. Is there any neuroelasticity there for those folks? Is, is there, how do you go and, how do you, I, I mean, this is a giant question for us all to work on, but how do we yeah. go and, and fix that? Will, will Donald ever see the error of his ways that way? <laughs> Sorry. So I just, I'm just looking for the laughs, the cheap laughs here, I realize, but, um, 
Yeah. If he conceded, I'm just saying, like, you know, if you have the chance, like you could write him a note, if he could like admit and concede, then it might help some of these folks dial it back. Well, actually, I, I just made a video um, for this thing called Renewed Democracy. And, you know, about, it was supposed to be about what democracy means to me. I'm like, well, we don't have one yet, but <laughs> hopefully we will. Um, you know, and the big lie and all that other stuff. So at the end, I said, the uh, the easiest way to start the process going of, you know, getting democracy and equal justice under the law and the vote, un you know, the, the right, the guarantee for people to be able to vote unimpeded in every election would be for um, Donald to concede gracefully. But I started laughing. <laughs> when I said that, because it never, ever, ever going to happen. So uh, why is it, why is it never going to happen? What goes on? Why why is he incapable of concession? Because that's losing. It, it's admitting a loss. I mean, that's why COVID happened. Seriously, COVID happened for two reasons. Initially, it was because um my sociopathic grandfather misinterpreted the already awful uh i don't know, I don't know uh, whatever you want to call the norman vincent peel's positive power thinking certainly wasn't a philosophy <laughs> and you know created this atmosphere of toxic positivity which is why donald talks the way he talks so like being associated with a disease is like literally reflects poorly on you, which is why, you know, my dad's alcoholism was ignored. My grandmother's physical injuries and her pain were ignored. Uh, so he wasn't going to admit that on his watch, this deadly pandemic was raging. And then once he couldn't keep pretending that it wasn't a thing, um, he had no choice but to downplay it because otherwise he would have had to course correct. And course correcting is admitting you're wrong. And admitting you're wrong means you're kind of a loser. There is a couple um, of takeaways from your book that really struck me. And one was this line that you say, um, it is an epic tragedy of parental failure that my uncle does not understand that he or anybody else has intrinsic worth. In Donald's mind, even acknowledging an inevitable threat would open him up to blame. And I'm touched you memorized. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's on a pillow. Um, so this this idea that even acknowledging an inevitable threat would open him up to blame, this is all goes back to daddy issues. Yep. Well, and, and, and mommy issues. You, yeah. you, you also wrote that Donald was to my grandfather what the border wall was to Donald. Mm -hmm. That they were like a hobby, like a vanity project. Yep. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy duty. But if you're saying that Donald was basically propped up by his father the whole time. Yep. What, what, was, your, what was your grandfather hoping to get out of putting Donald on a pedestal? Oh, you know, he was living vicariously. Uh, you know, he wasn't capable. I mean, he was very successful and very wealthy, mm -hmm. um, but I he wanted more. He wanted fame. He wanted no, uh, notoriety. And he just didn't have the personality. English was his second language. I guess he wasn't really comfortable in front of cameras. Uh, you know, he didn't grow up in, he grew up in the age of radio, right? And mm -hmm. newspapers. Um, so he wasn't a stupid person by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, he wasn't creative and he had no emotional intelligence, but he couldn't have cared less about those things. Um, <laughs> but he, there's no doubt he saw very early on, because he did this with my dad. He saw early that my dad wasn't who he wanted him to be. He, he, he wasn't who my grandfather wanted his successor to be. Mm -hmm. um, even though there's absolutely no evidence that my dad couldn't have done the job. Not, it's just that my, my grandfather didn't like him. Um, by the same token, 
I think is, this is in the book too, there's no evidence that Donald could do the job, but he was the kind of person uh, my grandfather knew he could use as a proxy mm-hmm. uh, and propped him up to the tune of almost half a billion dollars over the years. But Don says it was just 1 million, um, which again, okay, a huge lie. But also, is that an insignificant sum of money? I'm sorry. Like, I think if you gave most people who, you know, most responsible, relatively intelligent people, a billion dollars. A fantastic kickstart, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't think you get to call yourself self-made at that point, but anyway. So, so Fred affected and, and propped up Donald. What about Donald and his children? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, it's the same thing. It, it's the same thing. They, they well, it, okay. It is, and it isn't. And the way it is, is that their relationships are entirely transactional. Um, their relationships are entirely conditional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they know what they need to do. They know upon which side their bread is buttered, et cetera. Um, the difference, however, is that whereas my grandfather was perfectly comfortable ceding the spotlight to Donald, <laughs> that's not happening. That is not happening. He's much more likely to throw them under the bus to save his own ass <laughs> than he is to like support them in, uh, you know, outshining them, not happening. And mm-hmm. luckily now it never will because hopefully they're all going to prison. Do you think he sees Ivanka as his successor? Is is Fred to Donald as Donald is to Ivanka? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, I think he thinks that she makes him look good. Mm-hmm. You know, when he talks her up, it's not, as an independent person, it's as somebody he created or reflects well in him, which is again, just another sign of how deluded he is. <laughs> so he's also said that he is going to leave now. This was, uh, I mean, you know, as we're taping it, it could have changed, I don't know. But he said that he's going to leave um, on the inauguration morning do you think that's going to change? Do you think he's going to stay and take on the spotlight, try and keep it for himself? Uh, no. This, uh, is prediction. this is prediction time. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been saying for months that there's no way he's going to Biden's inauguration. Um, and so I, what I, I, you think that there's a chance he might stay, not to attend, but just to disrupt. I think he's more likely to go to like Mar-a-Lago or something and hold a big rally and assume that the media will cover him and take attention away, which they really better not do. And if he gets any of that pomp and circumstance, I mean, if our tax dollars go for the 21 gun salutes and the military flyovers and the red carpets and the whatever, I'm I'm going to have a very, very, very hard time swallowing that. Yes. He's a traitor. Like what else does he need to do? Like they, in the articles of, uh, articles of impeachment, it should literally say that he has to leave the White House in like a panel van. <laughs> in the back of a panel van. Um. I have like uh, just two more thoughts for you, two more questions for you before I think we have to go start eating our brownies. Um, and it, you said that he's incapable of growing and changing. A lot of folks his age also are, but I don't want to tar everyone with that brush. What what's what happens next in a mind like his? Like when he finds himself at Mar-a-Lago on January twenty first, is he happy as a pig in Mar-a-Lago or is he <laughs> or well, is he well played. Or, well played. thank you um can just project what you think might be going on could go on in the in the mind like his the day after it's all over 
Um, well, I, it's there's it's not like other people have changed. He's never been capable of growing and changing and evolving. Uh, so that makes him a special case. I don't know. I think you know Donald lives in the moment, in but not in a, a Zen way. You know, not in a mindfulness kind of way. Uh, it's literally like, did I just win? Am I winning now? Am I going to win in the next second? Um, so he will undoubtedly find ways to convince himself that that's what's happening. Um, he's also incapable of being happy. So it's more like, I don't know, sneering, uh, a sneering sense of having won or being vindicated or something. Um, I, it depends so much on how the media handle, handle this. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends so much on how quickly the legal stuff starts happening. Um, you know, my lawsuit is making its way mm -hmm. uh, slowly but surely. E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit, which I think is much more significant than mine, is uh, making its way. New York State, New York City are is definitely um sorry, I I just, you know, prove to myself that I don't have COVID because I'm smelling brownies. <laughs> so I'm gonna go check them out. Uh so like uh what would Fred say and what would um your grandmother say about Donald Trump's presidency? Oh my God. Um, my grandmother would take full advantage of it. Uh, you know, just the glory that it would confer upon her. Um, honestly, I don't think my grandfather would care at all. He would just never get over the fact that his children, his living children betrayed him by getting rid of his, his entire empire like minutes after he died. Uh, so yeah, I think he would, that, that's the only thing that would matter. He would be horrified by that. So not so much horrified about what he might've done with and to the country, but just focus on his own empire. Pretty much. I think that says a lot right there. Yeah. He's a great guy. <laughs> Miss him. You know, what is great. Uh, the fact that you're writing another book. So I look forward to reading it. I look forward to you maybe having cooked brownies one day. And I look forward to eating these brownies. I think maybe by inauguration, because that'll give me something with which to celebrate. <laughs> think they'll be a little dry? <laughs> like Zwieback, but for brownies. Um, I thank you so much for this. I hope to follow up with you at some point very soon. I hope you enjoyed The Secret Life of Cookies. A big thank you to Mary for baking and talking with me today. My recipe for gluten-free, double-dark chocolate brownies can be found on my website at marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd be so kind, please leave a review in the Apple Store. It helps people find the podcast. I may even bake you brownies as a thank you. Stay safe and talk to you again next week.